New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Traditional psychotherapy is wonderful when it works, but it's time-consuming and may be only effective to the degree that the therapist is self-aware and has done their own healing work. Even then, many people reach their limits with what that kind of therapy can offer and need an approach that is more experiential through expanded states of consciousness some modalities of this are sweat lodges, vision quests, and breath work. And where it is legal, psychedelics in places like Mexico. All of these healing modalities need a well-trained and trusted guide to help navigate the uncharted territories of deeply held blocks in the body and mind. When diving into this work, there is a need for clear intentions and proper integrations of altered state experiences into everyday life. Today we'll be exploring this path with our guest, Françoise Borzat. Françoise Borzat is a consciousness guide and counselor. She has a master's degree in somatic psychology and is a certified Hakomi practitioner. After traveling the world, she became an apprentice to an indigenous Mazatec woman leading healing ceremonies with sacred mushrooms in the high mountains of southern Mexico. Drawing from years of her close apprenticeship with this Mazatec shaman and healer, as well as her training in other indigenous traditions, Francoise has developed a comprehensive approach that bridges Western and indigenous modalities. She trains therapists and facilitators and teaches at the California Institute of Integral Studies and lectures internationally. She is co-author with Christina Hunter of Consciousness Medicine, Indigenous Wisdom, Entheogens, and Expanded States of Consciousness for healing and growth. Join us for the next hour as we explore experiential therapeutic applications of expanded states of consciousness that lead to healing and transformation with our guest, Francoise Borzat. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Francoise, welcome. 
Thank you. I would love to begin a little bit of background of your story. You've traveled throughout the Americas and throughout the world, and that really started in Paris. You, you were, I think, born in France. Is that correct? That's right. I was born and raised in Paris, uh, France, and spent my youth there until I was 19, at which age I after some studying of psychology in the University of Paris, I went to travel to the Americas for almost nine months. And as you traveled around, you, there, there were a couple of big happenings in your life, I think, that are worth talking about. One was when you were in Italy and you really descended into some pretty mm. awful habits. And then another was in Thailand. And I'd love for you to share those two stories. After my travel in South America, I came back to Europe and was pretty distressed. My father had passed away before my long travel to the Americas. And I came back to Europe in a state of depression and disorientation of what my life would be and my family life had, of course, changed. I happened to meet some people who uh, were Italian, and I went to live with them in Italy. turned out that this person was a junkie. And out of depression and, and disconnection, really, of what was going on around me, I started to consume heroin. At the time, it was smoking it, snorting it. I never really injected anything. Um, so I was on the periphery of that culture, but uh, the environment that I had to work with or go and buy the substance or the people we were uh, surrounded by were really um, challenging mm -hmm. culture. And I was witnessing some situations that were really, really, uh, really sub subhuman, like yes. something of a bad movie. So that was an important experience, which later on in my life as a counselor really served me to understand with maybe more compassion what some people could end up doing, not from their will or not from their rebelliousness necessarily, but rather for a set, from a sense of disconnection and disorientation mm -hmm. and some, some poor surrounding. So that was the first experience, which was both challenging and also later on instructive. Mm -hmm. And then you were rescued. I, I right, think I was somebody. rescued. Someone literally went to get me physically and said, I will take you back to France today. And I had to pack my bag and take the train. What a wonderful friend. So then later, at some point, you ended up in Thailand traveling by yourself. Tell, tell us about that. So I was 23. The first episode around uh, Italy was probably, I was 21, around 21, 2021. 20, and um, so young and a little clueless about things. When I was 23, I was more solid. I had been living in Switzerland for a year and a half or so. I was working. I got some good friends. I was, you know, having some pretty healthy activities, and I was pretty solid then. 
and I went to travel to Thailand uh, by myself, um, and I arrived in a place named Sukhothai, which is an old capital of Thailand, before Bangkok was the capital. And I was attacked by bandits, basically, in on the road, on a country road, as I was walking with a newly met friend, gentleman that I had met uh, visiting these temples. And they shot us. They shot us. I mean, literally, point blank. We were like two feet away from them. I mean, it was released. And my friend was uh, shot in the head and died. And I was shot in the leg and survived. Lost my balance, of course. My body went into a state of shock. And they stole everything from us and left us for dead. And um, that experience, of course, was tragic, uh, very traumatizing for me. I think one of the the moments that you describe in that, because uh, it seems like the officials did find the attackers, mm -hmm. and there was some sort of lineup. That's right. And you had an epiphany as you faced the attacker. Can you tell us what that was? Yes. Um, on hindsight, of course, I was in a state of shock. I was. It was two days after the attack. I don't know what my right mind or was, but when the uh, police officer, the chief of police, rather, invited me to the police station to look at a lineup of possible suspects, which whom apparently one of them was the culprit, or maybe two, they were not sure. Um, I was I was having the uh, choice to decide if I recognized someone. And as I looked at this gentleman, I couldn't see any of them, and then I saw him. I saw one of them, and I felt like at that moment I felt uh, many things. You know, this one second when a lot of things happen all at once. And in that second I felt both my sadness for the overall state of a human being to not be able to see me and consider me as another human being. That dehumanization, what had happened in his culture or in his life that could not see me as valid, valuable. So there was a sense of sadness. And then when I had to identify him, I also felt this intense um, responsibility and sense of accountability that my decision could make him be alive or dead. And that moment really um, woke me to the fact that I didn't want to carry the death of another human being on my conscience, on my soul for the rest of my life. I could literally send him to be executed. And I didn't want to do that. It was, it was a spiritual awakening. It was a moment of consciousness that had been created from that episode. And just looking in, him, in the eyes, I felt that I didn't want to kill him. He had wanted to kill me, but I didn't mean I had to do the same. And that individuation, that separation from uh, his decision and mine, was really important, and it really um, gave me a sense of 
compassion or a sense of um, my choice, my choice for my life that are different from his choice. Right, right. I, I, I just found that story just extraordinary. And now how in that split second you could make that decision not to to carry on in the way that he did. Uh, and I think that we could use that in our lives today. We can continue with that as we try and forgive those for the acts that they do, which are are just horrendous in these days. Um, so I, w I would like to then go fast forward now. Uh, we somehow, you're back, you're, you end up on the west coast of California and and you're you're studying different things and you're learning massage therapy and Hakomi I guess and other things and and you end up in um, southern Mexico and find this woman healer shaman teacher and it's just an extraordinary thing so we want to talk more about that in just one moment i just want to remind our listeners that i'm here with francoise borzat and she is the co-author of consciousness medicine indigenous wisdom in theogens and expanded states of consciousness for Healing and Growth, and her co-author is Christina Hunter. And if you want to know about her work, you can go to her website, francoiseborsat.com, and she spells her name F-R-A-N-C-O-I-S-E, Francoise Borsat, B-O-U-R-Z-A-T. FrancoiseBorzat.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Francoise Borzat, and we're talking about Consciousness Medicine, which is the title of her book. And we're just getting to the part of where you met Julieta. Uh, tell us about her and, and how you met her and what work you did with her. I met this gentleman named Juan. He was the owner of a little hotel in the Yucatan, south of Cancun in Mexico. And I was on vacation with my daughter. 
And I had been suggested to go to his hotel by a friend of mine and my husband and like that to have a safe vacation in a place where his friend had a hotel. So we arrive at this little hotel and uh, Juan and I start to talk about the past and our interests and all that. And I inform him that I've been doing some interesting exploration with some medicine men in California at the time and assisting this work, right, to learn and be immersed in this practices and approaches. And he starts to tell me about his friend, Julieta, whom he had met 28 years before when he was a teenager. And he starts to explain to me that Julieta lives in Huautla de Jimenez, which is the heart of this mushroom tradition, and the Mazatec people living there for millennia, practicing that sacred ceremony for millennia. And of course, I became extremely interested in uh, meeting her, but it was not in my style to show up in a village and push myself into someone's life. This is not, this is not my, my style, right? I wouldn't do that. And so he said, well, I'll take you there. He offered to take me there, and he had heard from his friend that um, who sent me to that hotel that I, I was really serious about this approach, and I was re- seriously interested in helping, facilitating some processes in a way that was possible and legal. So he decided to take me to the town of Huautla de Jimenez, and him and I met a uh, day in October. I don't remember the year exactly. I think it was 1998 or seven. And uh, introduced me to Julieta, who was a woman who was then 62. And she was a little Mazatec woman with these two braids, you know, on the side of her uh, face. And uh, she was very tiny and very strong and very fierce. And she, I talked to her about me. She had, I think, called, there was a phone somewhere. And so she was expecting us and she liked Juan very much. Uh, she had sort of adopted him when he was 15 and a hippie coming up to the magic land of the magic mushroom. <laughs> and she had took him under, she had taken him under her wings to uh, initiate in the sacred way of the, of the medicine. So it was a wonderful uh, meeting with her, and uh, the rest is history, as we say. So these journeys, um, and you, you took a journey then, a mushroom journey That's with right. her. I stayed, I stayed for a week, and she uh, sat for me in three mushroom ceremonies during that week, every other night, and that became uh, an amazing turning point both for my personal process and understanding of my own healing because she was a woman and she was a mother and she was a woman of the land, indigenous, which was very much resonant for me. Her approach was very caring and very hands-on. She would hold me, she would hold me, hold my hand, uh, very much take care of me, talk to me during the experience. Uh, so there was that, and then the, the the being welcomed into tradition was really a change for my for my work and my understanding of a culture that that, that was very foreign to me, very mystical. You know, uh, it, of course, during the '60s in 
the U.S. and and then even beyond, a lot of people have used these kinds of hallucinogens for recreation. Mm-hmm. You know, they go to a concert and they take ecstasy or something, or they they do, you know, they're just doing something like that, and and it's not in this ceremonial way. And I know that your book really outlines the importance of of using this kind of medicine, we'll call it uh, substance medicine, as um, as a sacred ritual, and you're very, very careful with it, and you do certain things. So can you speak to that? In traditional setting, all these medicines have been used for so long in sacred ceremonies. Nothing has ever been taken as a, as a fun thing in those cultures. It can be mushroom, it can be ayahuasca, it can be African iboga, it can be peyote, it was a Native American church, or the witchels, it can be the San Pedro maestro in South America. Everything has always been in reverence to the earth, in prayers, and in a context where someone is in charge of the ceremony, in charge of the context, and charge of the safety of everybody. So, sure, the, the the West or the North, I don't know, the, the modern world has sort of created a different culture around the usage of these substances. And it doesn't mean that people coming together and taking a walk in nature or having a, having a dance party cannot benefit from taking something together, right? People take ecstasy or people take a little mushroom and we know that there is a lot of um, fairly intentional and fairly safe environments where such uh, events can take place. And it's not necessarily a negative thing, but it can be, as we know. There's a danger to that. Um, but this, in this book, I pay attention to the context of a ritual and try to draw uh, from this context and from those practices the the ways in which we can support the usage in a more contemporary culture, less traditional, less indigenous, less rooted in in a practice for millennia. So my interest is to is to bridge this traditional practice, at least this one, which is one I know, into a more modern world, modern industrialized world. Uh, so we can we can learn. We can learn from these very ancient practices. We don't have to reinvent the wheel and see what is beneficial, what is not beneficial, what are the practices that are that we we ought to follow. One of the things that you emphasize is that it it might be very beneficial going into something like this, whether it's taking a substance or whether it's going on a vision quest or a sweat lodge or whatever it is, whatever modality it is, because it doesn't have to be a substance, but it Mm -hmm. can be, that one goes into it with an intention. Mm -hmm. So can you speak to the importance of focusing on an intention and how that is beneficial? Mm -hmm. Any technique that is used for expanding consciousness is in and of itself an interesting, fascinating exploration. And we can go into those places out of curiosity, out of uh, not knowing what in us we can access. 
we don't know until we are there. However, with the, with the context of a ceremony and the support of a guide, we can identify an intention, which means what is calling us into a ceremony? What is happening inside us that is really um, taking us into this meeting with this technique? Breath work, sweat lodge, vision quest, trance dance, right? or substance uh, ritual. What in us is calling for health, for healing, for restoration, for deepening, for uh, a dimension of spirituality, or for an understanding of our, of our place in the world? So what is the calling? And I, I think it's important to own, own, um, take responsibility, take accountability of what brings us into a situation. So in in that having the intention, uh, another thing is that when you go into some deep altered state, you don't always you do not have control over the experience mm -hmm. that shows up. Mm -hmm. And I know that you state in your book, you say there are no random, experiences. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes they might be quite beautiful, but other times they can be quite difficult. And I, you go into a description of all the different kinds of experience yes. that you can have. So what can you say to uh, someone who comes with an intention, but then does not have control over what shows up? That's right. Well, and I described that in the book because I, I we all know that some people called you know, I had a bad trip or I went on a vision quest to connect with nature and I was really scared or I went to dance with my friends and I found myself very lonely inside or as I danced, I started to recover sexual abuse memory and it's not a fun environment, We, even though we can expect all kind of wonderful experiences. So um, when we expand consciousness, we are by definition, bringing a larger container for our experience of being a human being, which contains aspects of ourselves that we may not have seen before. We may have not, we may not have seen our greed or our anger or repressed mem repressed memories or um, our power our vulnerability, our tenderness, sometimes what we don't see is a good quality, right? It's not necessarily ugly, but expanding consciousness is making a territory in which more of us can be revealed. And sometimes what is revealed is challenging. And part of what we have to trust in this environment of being guided and being intentional is that whatever is being revealed is within the path of healing. So there's no random or there's no mistake to what reveals itself. Sometimes it's a beautiful thing. Sometimes it's a challenging emotion. Sometimes it's a very painful dynamic that's being revealed. And what is being revealed is ready to be revealed. And it's grist for the meal, as, uh, you know, Ram Dass would say. It's grist for the meal we are given from within our subconscious, the material that we are ready to face and process. So it, that's why um, having a guide, 
a trusted and an educated, uh, trained guide is very helpful because one never knows what's going to show up. And to have someone who's really trained to help in in that what you you give a lot of voice to integration mm-hmm. to to it's not just about okay I have this trip and I'm going I have this journey and I have this experience but it's like okay now how do we bring it back into our life and into our daily practice our daily relationships and how we live in the world we're going to talk about that in just one moment I'm going to remind our listeners that I'm here with Francoise Borzat and she is the author of Consciousness Medicine, Indigenous Wisdom, Entheogens, and Expanded States of Consciousness for Healing and Growth. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Francoise Borzat, and she is the author of Consciousness Medicine, Indigenous Wisdom, Entheogens, and Expanded States of Consciousness for Healing and Growth. And the co-author is Christina Hunter. And if you want to know about her work, you can go to her website. It's FrancoiseBorzat.com. Dot com and she spells her name F R A N C O I S E Borzat B O U R Z A T Francoise Borzat dot com or you can get there through the New Dimensions website newdimensions.org. So we're getting to the point we're talking about integration and having a guide to help us with this and and really to help interpret what what the journey was about and what was the message of the journey and how can we incorporate it in our lives. So please say something about that. Yes, this is probably the most important part of this, um, of this material that I uh, gathered in the book because part of this process of entering expanded states through whatever technique is a process of transformation it may be a process of curiosity led by a certain, you know, I'm intrigued with doing a vision quest or I'm intrigued to start this sweat lodge or I'm intrigued to be guided in a mushroom journey that, that I'm curious and I want to do that and I want to do that well. But then what really is calling? We go back to the intention. What was the source of this, of this curiosity? What in us is trying to evolve or change or heal or expand or get better in some way, right? Or get deeper or get wider. And once we have explored this experience, this journey, then how is that experience becoming a transformation and not just a fabulous moment, fabulous day or fabulous retreat, but it becomes who we are, not just something we do. And I'm really interested in the process of empowerment. 
and individuation and autonomy. I really don't want people to be depending on, you know, a practice or a drug, medicine, even if it's sacred. And I don't want people to even eventually be dependent on a guide or having someone to tell them. So I want people to take charge of their growth and their healing. And the integration is exactly that, is for the the guide to um, help the journeyer identify what has happened in the journey. What's important? How is the person feeling after the experience? And how is that going to be cultivated in an everyday practice? You know, I can remember all of this is just reminding me of the first session I ever had with substances, and and it was with a guide. And uh, however, I, I went into it with curiosity. You mentioned curiosity. I, I didn't have any anything written down about oh well, here's what I want to get out of it or anything like that. And the guide did not prepare me in any way for what to expect, mm-hmm. except to say, I asked, I said, how long will this last? And he said, oh, it'll be about eight hours. You know, and, and I, re- I remember like thinking, w- looking at my watch or something, and as soon as um, the visuals and things started to come, I wanted to back out. I said, oh, I don't want this. And I, I, I just went and pulled the covers up over my head, and I said, oh, I'm just going to go to sleep. And of course, no, you're on the train. You are, you're on the journey. And so I, that's why I appreciate your book so much, Francoise, because it, it really warns us and gives us an idea of what to expect how to prepare, even even these inventories. You have just many, many pages of the kinds of inventories, self-inventories we can take and to know where we are and what we're thinking and how we are. And then it prepares us for what a little bit, not that we can totally prepare, but at least we can come in a little more relaxed. I think we can come into those experiences with more awareness of who we are and what is well in our lives and what is a little weaker and what is totally missing, right? This five-aspect model that I like to um, refer to as a preparation, as a way to look at the categories of experiences of the journey itself and as practices of integration, this holistic model is a way to evaluate the state of balance of one's life. So if, a, if an experience is, 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 if someone, sorry, if someone enters uh, the preparation phase realizing that they don't take care of their body very well at all, they may have a good emotional life, a spiritual practice, they may have, you know, relay friends and relationship, community, and they may be in nature, but they don't they don't eat well, they don't sleep well, they they eat junk food or they drink too much or they smoke pot every single day, you know, in a way that is not very fruitful for their overall life. Well, as a guide, when I look at the inventory and I look at the state of this five aspect, if I see that the body aspect is so uh, weak or so depleted, I will put a lot of attention in in preparing the person with creating more balance or and orienting the client to look at 
what's going on there? What is, what is the source of this depletion and absence of self-care? Where have you learned this? And my curiosity goes to what is um, weak. So that might even happen before the journey Absolutely. takes place. And Absolutely. So, so this is not learned on the journey itself, no. but it's something you talk about ahead of time. That's right. In the preparation phase, I have my inventories, or I give them the inventories, and I have them um, look at that. Or if they go on a meditation retreat, or if they go in a dance retreat, I said, where are you in your life? Where are you in relation to this five aspect? What is strong in you, a good resource? What is well honed and practiced? And what is weak? Because that this five aspects really represent the holistic aspect of life. So even if we don't take any journey at no. all, just going through those inventories, I just found them Fa fabulous, fabulous. And I want to say this about the inventories, because we're used to thinking about the triad, mind, body, spirit, you know, but you go further than that. You also include community and environment. Can you say something yes, about why and, you do that? And, you know, my good friend, Ralph Metzner, who sadly passed away in March, yes. but was very um, interested in this manuscript. And, and he wrote me. the forward He wrote it. the forward, and I'm the last forward he wrote, apparently. I know, I'm it's in, wonderful. And he, and he worked on the manuscript with me very closely. And that was his interest, was the fact that the body, mind, spirit was expanded into including community and environment. And I think that the body, mind, spirit have been pretty much mainstreamed by now, we can say, the connection between what we think and how our body functions or how we are practicing a spiritual um, technique for like meditation or even yoga, all this are, has been woven into the mainstream awareness of, of, of personal development and, and health, human health and mental health. But the community and environment have not been so. And I'm finding that uh, Paramount because in traditional cultures, everything has to do with community and environment. The rituals happen on the earth. They are all very connected with earth, maybe in Africa, maybe in South America, maybe in Mexico. People are farmers, people, people you know, carry their wood, people cook on the wood, which is not a good idea necessarily, but you know, they, they are very much connected with nature. And they are in community a lot. They're not living very separately. The family lives together. The, the cousin lives next door. The grandmother lives with the family. Um, the, the cousins live in the same town or the same village. And the sense of, of communal co-living, sometimes in a huge compound, or even just having knowing who your neighbors are, or having various rituals. I was just in Mexico, I came back two days ago, and there were memorial services, and the whole village comes to honor the dead and come to pray. There's like 300 people arrive to support the family. These are practices that involve community, right? And they could be religious practices or rituals, sacred rituals, of course. And we, we in the modern industrialized world have not really paid very much attention to the power, the healing power and the growth power of community uh, and of the environment, which, you know, we are in a bad shape now. So we have to consider what is our relationship with nature and how aspects of nature really 
are part of the sacred rituals, especially when they involve vision quest, in which you sit on the land, sweat lodge, in which you sit on the land, meditation, in which you sit on the land, um, you know, dance, in which you move your body on the land, and all these medicine traditions which have to do with ingesting material that is grown by the earth. I think that one of the uh, uh, descriptions you give, and, and the book is filled with some examples and mm -hmm. some of your own writing, your own journaling, mm -hmm. and some from other people. And um, one of them, and I believe it was one of yours, where in one of your journeys, Pele came to you. Mm -hmm. And it was so beautiful to think about how she comes from the center of the earth, this fire that we we're held up by. Can you describe that somehow? I, I just Yes, that, that journey was really uh, very big for me because in that journey, not only I connected with uh, a feminine archetype force, but also with the magma of the earth, literally her blood. And that connected me with my blood and my own power, my own fuel, my own circulation, my own intensity, right? And my own possibility of expression because Pele is all that right she she is the magma and she's also the the flowing magma or the erupting magma magma right so she's the expression of what she has inside and uh, and for me it was a very empowering experience and it was early on in my uh, work with um, with medicines and I was um, I was connected with that potential in myself and it was d deeply deeply empowering so now you carry that with you as part of, you know, your cellular memory that's right. now. And that's a good cellular memory. That's right. That's right. So then so then the issue or the, the topic is this memory of Pele has lived in me forever. And a journey like this is branded in one psyche and one memory. And I cannot erase it. I cannot ever forget it, right? But and my my then work um has been to to feel that fuel in myself, to find ways to reconnect with it and express it. So it may be in songs or it may be in artwork or it may be my connection with the land or it may be through this book. My passion for life and my passion, my, my fuel has been connected with this memory of Pele. That's great. Thank you so much for helping us to get an experience of yes. what the potential of these mm -hmm. journeys. I'm here with Francoise Borzat, and she is the author of Consciousness Medicine, Indigenous Wisdom, Entheogens, and Expanded States of Consciousness for Healing and Growth. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Francoise Borzat, and she's the author of Consciousness Medicine, Indigenous Wisdom, Entheogens, and Expanded States of Consciousness for Healing and Growth. And Francoise, uh, in this time right now, there is research going on to legalize or to make some of these substances available for medical reasons. And that's like on the cusp of being able, let's say, to for PTSD, that they're they're really almost right on the cusp of being able to legalize that. And and then there are other things. There's the legalization of of uh, or the decriminalization of of different kinds of substances that is going on. So, what can you say about where are we now, and what is your opinion of all of this? Mm-hmm. Well, I have been closely following the diligent effort and research and incredible stamina um, uh, of the research. Uh, May it be through maps for the PTSD uh, treatment with MDMA. And and say what MAPS stands for, M-A-P-S. Yes, uh, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Okay, great which is an organization who has devoted its uh, purpose, is a nonprofit, uh, 501c3, who now has a B-profit corporation, to um, basically medicalize the use of MDMA for PTSD uh, treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder and um, medication-resistant um, uh, trauma, PTSD. Um, so I've been following that. I've been following the research in John Hopkins University, NYU, uh, with the tr- with the usage of psilocybin, which is synthesized psilocybin, um, extracted psilocybin. They're not working with uh, mushrooms themselves for the treatment of anxiety, uh, depression, some treatment uh, exploration of addiction treatment as well as people diagnosed with life-threatening disease and that creating an immense amount of anxiety for them. And all these researches have been really very well conducted. Oh, there's also the, um, the research at John Hopkins regarding the benefit, the merit of spiritual experiences with psilocybin and how is that an enhancement of human life and is that maintaining itself through uh, an extended period of time and how is that beneficial to people's life, which is a very valid uh, exploration, I think. Well, what is some of the outcome of that, that one in particular? Well, uh, the, uh, uh, the person in charge of the study who is um, Roland Griffith has found that people who have had a meaningful spiritual experience during a psilocybin journey tend to be more friendly, more connected with their family, more creative, more patient, calmer, more healthy, more involved in their community. So again, we see the five aspect model being addressed in these different uh, variables that they were measuring. Mm-hmm. Um, they take care of their body better, and the sense of overall happiness and uplift was measured, of course, after the experience, and was measured a year after. And a year after, it was still valid. They were still having this benefit. It has a residual effect. So it's yes. it's stuck. 
you know, yeah. the, the way they were feeling and the way they were relating to people in their life and to themselves was, in fact, maintaining its value and its potency, maybe less, but they were still seeing the benefit of it. So I, I think that all this research is really valid. I'm really glad that all these various uh, researchers have made so many progress. I think that what um, I'd like to uh, weave in, and I am in discussion with them, and I am invited to discuss these topics with them, is that we want to make sure we acknowledge, express gratitude, and include in this movement forward, the traditional cultures from which these practices come from. Because the danger is to just do what we've done in the past. We colonize, we take something, we go away, and we don't turn back. And that is, I think... We pluck it out of its context. Uh, in context, <clears throat> yes. We pluck it out of its context, and we don't turn back to say thank you. And that practice of, of basically extracting, we extracted gold, we extracted, God forbid, people out of Africa, and now we extract medicines, and then we put them in a lab, and we use them as if they were not belonging anywhere, and as if we don't look back and thank the people who have kept it alive for thousands of years. And so the, that's the danger. The danger is disconnected and lack of... of um, of gratitude, of mutual interfacing. So I'm, I'm uh, you know, the medicine that we've had, the meds we've had here, have been born out of plants, have been born out of, of, of very um, uh, precious plants extracted from the jungle. So they may be synthesized now, but they originally... That's right. That's right. Originally, they were existing in a natural environment, in a natural uh, culture of a specific tradition, mm -hmm. and now we synthesizing them and putting them in an in a hospital environment. And I think that the danger is to disconnect from the tradition. Isn't there something like an African hallucinogen uh, that's being used for addiction? Ibogaine. Uh, Ibogaine. Yes. Mm -hmm. So orig originally, Ibogaine comes from iboga, and iboga is a witty tradition from the pygmy of Gabon, and it's a very powerful uh, practice, which I have not done, even though I know some very powerful masters from that tradition I've had the honor to meet, and that that practice is very powerful, I've heard, very intense, it has to do with ancestors and past lives and Mm, the spirit of the ground, and it's, it's very powerful. And so originally, it's a very, very traditional framework led by a master around a fire, and you have to paint your body. It's a very intricate ritual. But now they've extracted ibogaine, which is very potent for the treatment of addiction, opiate addiction. And there were some clinics existing, and there's still some clinics existing out of United States, uh, legal clinics, of course, who, who which treat people with heroin addiction very successfully, and treating addiction in general, the addictive process. I know someone who went to do ibogaine in a, a broad clinic who was addicted addicted to uh, soda 
sodas, Coca-Cola, oh, you know, sodas. Like sugars. And Sugar stuff, thing. Yeah. And he came back, he never touched it again. Oh, yeah. And so it's not necessarily about heroin, it's about the addictive process. When you talk about uh, going back to the original indigenous roots of these ceremonies and these plants and, and honoring that, what about co-opting as as people not of those cultures or non-indigenous people mm -hmm. uh, using those ceremonies. What, what can you say about that co-opting? Yeah, we're talking about um, cultural misappropriation, yes. right? Like uh, going somewhere, doing something, a ritual, and then pretending to own it and take it out of its context and, and, yes. and, and sort of being a, a bit of a charlatan or, you know, imposter and, and trying to pose like this. Well, it happens a lot. There are a lot of people who feel like after a couple of journeys or ceremonies with some shaman, they can uh, have the audacity of uh, posing as healers and shamans, and that's a problem. Um, some people have a good personality and a good intuition, and they may do no harm. The issue is how skilled are they? Yes. How deep can they take people into these experiences? How safe is it? Do they understand the intricacy of such rituals? It's very complicated. I've been to Mexico for 20 years, and I still don't understand everything about it. Well, and I'm going to say, uh, with with you, your teacher, Julieta, has called you an interpreter. Mm -hmm. So she's actually commissioned you. She's she's given you a kind of... Mandate. Mandate. All right. Mandate. So say something about that. Yes. She, uh, I had no ambition whatsoever. I was just there for myself, learning what I could, being so grateful, uh, bringing people to her and sitting with her in this uh, journeys, which was so transformative and so wonderful. And I just, I just did that, right? And then she talked to me and she said, you know, uh, in the prayer, she was talking uh, during the night, and it was Spanish, so I could understand. And she said, you know, Francisca, which is what she calls, she called me, uh, is here to interpret my tradition. And I talked to her the day after, and I said, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, you know, you, you know our tradition, and you know the way to talk about it that is correct, that is respectful, and that is appropriate to what the world can hear. And truly, there are things that might be a little too esoteric for people that I would not say. The way they do certain rituals or what they believe in, which might be too foreign for the world here that I might not share. But on the other hand, um, I would share what is appropriate and what is potent and what is useful for this world here. So she gave me this kind of mandate to do that. And she knew I was writing this book. She passed away a year ago now. And uh, her daughters are continuing the work, which is wonderful. Um, but she, she, she entrusted me with that. That's wonderful. I'm so sorry to hear that she's passed on. I didn't know that. So. Well, she, you know, she was. She got ill, and she was 82, and yes. she was a woman oh. of. Uh, she had 11 children, and oh. uh, she was a hardworking woman. So. You know, it was yeah. uh, it was an old age for that uh, that That's culture. That's true. It's it's good to know the work continues yes. on. Yes, yes. I want to thank you so much for being part of the New Dimensions series today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've been here with Francoise Borzat, and she is the co-author of Consciousness Medicine: Indigenous Wisdom, Entheogens, and Expanded States of Consciousness for Healing and Growth. 
Her website is FrancoiseBorzat.com, and that she spells her name F-R-A-N-C-O-I-S-E-B-O-U-R-Z-A-T, FrancoiseBorzat.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3687. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.